Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I would like to thank our sponsor, QVAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical tasks, developing deep personal relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Colleagues, is your organization thinking about a capital campaign, hiring a new development officer, or taking your fundraising efforts to another level? How about inviting myself and another member of Responsive's consulting team to facilitate a two-day sense-making experience for your team? Our two-day sense-making retreats are custom-designed to ensure that your entire team is making sense of what's most working in your favor and what's getting in your way. If this sounds like something you might be interested in, click the simple form in the show notes and we'll be happy to arrange an introductory call. Hi, Mazarine. Delighted to have you back on the pod, uh, Fundraising Talent Podcast. This is actually uh, record. I think this is our third time. It is our third time uh, trying to uh, record this um, this conversation. But you were, I think as we were talking uh, during one of our earlier conversations here most recently, I think you were one of my guests when we launched this thing like 250 episodes back. So uh, so anyway, I'm delighted to have you here. Um, sounds like we're going to have a really good conversation. It is three o'clock my time. I have a very warm, um, high test cup of afternoon coffee in hand. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Mazarine, before we dive into our topic of discussion, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Of course, Jason. Thank you so much for having me back. Um, so I'm Mazarine Trace. I, uh, founded the Wild Women's Guide to Fundraising website, and now I'm doing um, the Asking for More uh, Mastermind and Podcast, and I'm also doing the Nonprofit Consulting Conference in August, and I hope you can come if you're a consultant or thinking about it. Um, And yeah, like, it's been a wild ride through COVID, and so we've all had to do our thing and pivot and talk about what that means. And so, um, yeah, I love talking to people about how we can succeed now in the new reality. So I'm glad we're talking today. Yeah. So tell me about the, um, I just saw somebody talking about the conference. I'm guessing that's your conference. Tell me about that, what that's coming up. And we'll make sure to put some uh, information in the show notes as well. Uh, Sure. I want to make sure I've got that on my radar. And I certainly want to make sure that my listeners have that on their radar as well. Yeah. So if you go to nonprofitconsultingconference.com, you can check it out. We're going to have the legend, Dr. Bev Browning. 
talking about how to deal with conflict as a consultant, which is pretty cool. We're also going to have Andy Robinson talk about how he built his consulting practice with speaking engagements. And he loves teaching this. So I'm really excited to have him speak. He's well known for his board training and um, his website is trainyourboard.com. Anyway, and we have a bunch of other people talking about passive income as a consultant on a panel. I'll be talking about asking for more. Um, We'll have other people talking about marketing and it's going to be a blast. Um, I feel like this last year has been really difficult for those of us who love to build community and who love to be in community and and extroverts like myself. And so um, we're doing this for ourselves as well as for others uh, because it means so much to be able to build community with people like us. So I'm organizing it with uh, Holly Rustic of the Grant Writing and Funding Podcast and also with Mandy Pierce of Funding for Good. So really excited to be doing this with both of them. It's a new uh, world out there. And our title sponsor is Founded Technologies. I should not forget to mention that. Um, We're so excited to partner with them. They're doing a lot of incredible work as well. Totally cool. You got Dr. Browning um, in your lineup. And I want to say Andy Robinson, he's been around a long time. Am I right? Yeah, Yeah, Um, very long time. I want to say um, in fact, why don't you uh, shoot him an email and tell him that if he wants to create some additional buzz, I'd be delighted to have him here on the podcast before the event. If he'd like to create some more buzz for your your event, I will. Um, I'll tell him. The, uh, and, and the reason I say that, I, hit one of his books was probably, I, I bet it's one of the first books I picked up, certainly one of the first two or three. Um, and I don't know what which book and and what the topic was. It sounds like it may have been about board development, might have been mm-hmm. about grant writing. But I remember um, reading one of Andy's books very early in my fundraising career. So um, really cool. Um, Mazarine, we ask our guests to come on with a big idea, bold opinion. Um, you and I have sort of went around this this topic a couple of times and went in all sorts of directions. I bet we'll have a very coherent and smooth and uh, perhaps a very in sync conversation today. Yes. Um, but uh, what do you got for us? Well, um, with the great resignation that's happening um, and the new understanding around Black Lives Matter and white supremacy in the nonprofit sector from the last two years, uh, we now have work to do around how we look at our organizations, our day-to-day activities, which you want to talk about, which we should, as well as how we restructure uh, our organizations with an understanding that we operate under structures of oppression, both internally and externally and inside our organization itself. So I'm really excited to talk about that because the nonprofit sector is bleeding people, it's bleeding money, and it's bleeding donors. And so if we really want to continue to be there for folks during this really trying time where a lot of things are falling apart, we have to ask ourselves, how are we a part of this and what can we do better and differently? And I think we both have different interesting perspectives on this. I'd like to hear your perspective too, Jason. Yeah, I think when I sort of reflect on sort of our, we'll call it our pre-conversations, mm. um, I, I think there's somewhat of a, you and I are sort of wrestling with, it seems like the same question mm. in, in sort of two, uh, we'll, we'll put them in maybe in two columns side by side, if mm-hmm. just, to, just two containers, if you will. Yes. Um, and one is sort of the question of, in order to achieve some of the aspirations that it seems like a lot of us want the sector to achieve, we almost have to start over with the um, with the organizations themselves, right? It's the question of whether some of these organizations that are rooted in white supremacy that are, you know, 
chock full of old white guys sitting on their boards, you know, however you want to sort of look at it, you almost have to ask the question, can those organizations be uh, re-engineered? And I think the other question that I think arose the last time you and I talked is how much of this conversation that sort of is emerging between you and I um, is about reformulating, re-engineering perhaps the fundraiser's job description. Um, what do you think, which, um, and I think you and I are pretty much in sync. I mean, there, you know, the, it's, it's interesting that you are not, you and I, you and I sort of come from different places. We're on two different ends of the country. We work with different types of clients, but what I've been surprised as you and I have talked and, and what I hope our listeners will hear today, there seems to be some synergy, even in the midst of the tension that you and I might create. Um, I uh, I was looking forward to getting back on here. So tell our tell our listeners some more of what you're thinking, and perhaps maybe we'll walk down those two those two paths. Those two paths, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. The previous conversation we had, it really felt like you were trying to talk more about the day to day fundraiser activities, and I think those are important, and we can definitely talk about that. And the other one, as you said, is the systems and structures that uphold oppression, which we're probably not super aware of, both inside of ourselves as well as in our organizational structures and then uh, outside in the larger world of our culture itself. Um, And I honestly don't think it's just all about old white guys on the board. I'm pro all kinds of people. Um, And so anyone who's listening to this who is an old white guy, I like (laughs) you. And there is nothing wrong with having people like you on the board. What becomes a problem is uh, when people from the community and people who are being served don't have uh, an equal voice on the board as you do. So really, when we talk about systems of oppression, it's a little bit more abstract. And I can understand why you want to make it super concrete, Jason. Like, I get it. Like, let's make it concrete for the average fundraiser listening to this to like, how uh, do we change what we do day to day to make it more equitable and more um like aware of these structures that are holding us back. I can stay, I can stay, I can stay abstract for a little while. So I like like hands on too. It's okay. Whatever. (laughs) So what are, in your mind, what are the things? Okay. So we've got an, so we're okay with the old white guys on the board, for example, you know, and perhaps a couple of them have to sort of move out of the way. Um, But um so, 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 I guess your your response to that question it can can some of the organizations that exist out there, or can a lot of the organizations out there do do you sort of respond to the question more optimistically that they can be salvaged and that they don't have to go away? They just have to perhaps get out of you know a couple of them have to get out of the way, maybe. Well, I really liked your conversation with Anika Allen, where she uh-huh. talked about how uh, we should let Black women who are arrested lead organizations. Yeah. I think that um, we all have biases because we're human beings, and uh, we don't always have the same awareness of our biases. For example, I know that I'm racist. I know that I'm sexist. I know that I'm misogynist. Like, I know that I, I hate some parts of myself, you know, and other parts of other women that I see. No matter how much work I've done, that's still there. So for me, um, 
to understand that is the internal work. And then we also have to look at what does the external world reinforce all the time that makes us continue to hold these biases and then try to create systems and structures that allow us to overcome what is baked in. And so to answer your question very succinctly, look at the Stanford prison experiment. We just talked about this last time. So briefly, right. Stanford prison experiment in a nutshell is they took all the people out of a prison. They took uh, all of the prisoners out, all of the guards out, and then they put people back in and they put Stanford students in as guards. And within a month or even a few weeks, everybody was acting the same way they were before brand new people because of the structure of the building. The architecture was built to make people abuse power and, you know, feel inferior. And so, uh, knowing that and that's just a prison that's not like where our art and profits are we have an opportunity right now if we're working from home some of us to be like how could we reshape work how could we do a six-hour work day a four-day work week but pay people more or pay people the same but make help them work less have infinite vacation have better child care options for folks like i or, or elder care or or sabbatical options or health care like if you really want to keep your good people if you really want to save money and make more money and have more donors there are structural solutions to this that maybe go beyond the walls of your building into the policies and structures that you can create so you could fix it but i think first people have to see what a prison it actually is so is this okay so the average mom and pop nonprofit organization, you know, ABC organization serves, let's say it's a, I, I don't know what type of organization it is, but what is the, in your mind, using the Stanford uh, prison experiment reference and folks will put some, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the project, we can put some shit, we can put a, a Wikipedia link in the show notes, for example, but what is the, what is the structure that's wrong? Because you're right. They put they put people who sort of ju- everybody just conformed to that. That's what you're talking about. Everybody just sort of conformed to their roles. Mm-hmm. And um, and I like to think when I think about board members, for example. So if we just sort of sit on the board member idea, I think I have interacted with enough board members who literally were completely oblivious to how the board dynamic worked, what role they had. And if you, and if they walked in the door and you told them that their job was to do something completely different, I don't know that half the people, you know, I'm thinking, let's just, let's say, just, just use a stupid number half. I don't think half the people would, would resist. I think they would just conform. And I don't know that that's a bad thing. But it, and and maybe that just means that people like you and I or others who've got to Nika and others have got to be more bold with uh, with making some recommendations on how we structure that. Am yeah. I right? Yeah, I mean, so let's say for example, where I used to work, the Urban League of Portland. Let's just put that yeah. in as an example. Yeah. So that board was primarily older members of the community. There are very few young people on it, if any. Yeah. Um, the uh, the structure of the organization was set up so that there was no HR person. There was an admin person who uh, wasn't given enough training. Uh, there was a, uh, a programs people that really weren't sure what their program's budget was supposed to be or how they were being measured in performance. There were very few performance reviews. Um, and, uh, yeah, like, and then there was our government contract for senior services where 
uh, our contract stipulated uh, wage increases every year for inflation, and people were not getting that. So there were checks and balances that were missing there that increased the abuse of power. Um, and so uh, I think for the average organization, it would be nice to uh, have a more sort of flat co-leadership model because our executive director was very overwhelmed. The CEO yeah. was very overwhelmed with all of his duties. And that led to a lot of these things falling through the cracks. I'm going to be as charitable as possible and say that it wasn't intentional, right? As much as I... I'm not in his head. I have no idea if it was or not. Um, but the, what, the, yeah. The the Urban League would be by definition, I, I would, again, I, I, I had a former boss, boss's boss that worked with the Urban League. It, would they define themselves as an advocacy organization primarily? Yes, but we also had programs like for literacy and for senior services. Okay, so there was like, it depends direct. on, it depends on the state. Like it depends yeah, on the, okay. the municipality. Some do more, think, some do less. Yeah. Because one of the things that I, so I teach two classes over, the, I teach two sections of the same nonprofit management course um, and, and just wrap that up here in the spring. And, and, and we go through the difference between advocacy organizations and direct services. Mm-hmm. And it occurs to me, it occurs to me that some of the aspirations and this, this, I mean, maybe this is part of the bold message that needs to come from people like yourself and myself and Nika or somebody else. And that is that because there is a message that seems to be emerging. Actually, it's not emerging. It seems to already have been said that we're occupying too much of the direct service that, for example, some of these expectations we should have of the government, for example. And so we're not playing the advocacy role. Um and a lot of this ties in, I think you were talking about neoliberalism, and I'm getting my mind wrapped around sort of that time frame, you know, that sort of emerged in the 70s and 80s and sort of where that sort of just started to take over when the government just started handing off things that to the to the nonprofit sector and we willingly accepted them. And now we sort of take the heat because a lot of it we can't get done, maybe because we weren't supposed to be getting it done in the first place. And so I've, I've really dived deep into this. So there's an incredible history podcast. If anybody wants to listen to American history and laugh, check yeah. out the dollop podcast with Dave Anthony. It yeah. is so, so funny. So the reason I know more about this is because um, during the pandemic, I would listen to it and be like, Oh yeah, that's so true. Oh my God. I looked at all the pandemic anyway, during quarantine. So, so, this started when America started. America was built for corporations. Look at yeah. the Boston Tea Party example. In the Boston yeah. Tea Party example, we're like, we don't like taxes. So we're just going to like, you know, pretend to be natives and then just pour all this tea into Boston Harbor. And so like our country was somewhat set up not for religious freedom, though it was part of it, but also for corporate freedom. And so if you look way back in the 16, 1700s, like you can see how corporate oligarchy slowly takes over our country because when unions rose, right, like back in like the early 1900s, like there's a wonderful uh, episode in the podcast called, about Eugene Debs and about how that worked. Um, we were rising with worker power uh, and equality, and that really helps solve a lot of these isms that are a problem for us, like sexism, racism, and so on, right? But yes. um because in the 50s, even before Reaganomics, which you're which you're alluding to, yeah, in yes. the 50s, HR, human resources, started to take over the role 
of the union and then defang the union and slowly suppress the union and make a neoliberal model of if you don't love your job and it doesn't give you all the meaning in the world, yeah. then there's something wrong with you personally. Right. Not this structure was never built to support you. Yes, and people used it. to find meaning in religion and yes. value and purpose in religion. And now they don't as much in this country. Right. So uh, so work has become religion. And yes. so in the 80s, Reaganomics dictated as a natural progression from all of the suppression of workers and neoliberal kind of corporate totalitarianism, which we have, which is like corporations are like, well, our profit imperative, that's pretty much it. Like, and it's actually not really true, but that's a whole other separate thing. Anyway, um, having Reagan say, okay, great, we're just going to get rid of all these social services and farm not to nonprofits at a, at a cheaper rate, which is why you small nonprofit or you mid-sized nonprofit cannot make it happen under government contract because they're trying to get the lowest amount for, for this service for their dollar. And then they'll pay it out six to 12 months later, which means you might have to like let people go. I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't know if you're an executive director and you have a government contract. The Department of, um, like, anyway, I could go on about government contracting yes. and how that screws I, I, us I, over. Yeah. Right. These are, these are discussions that I've directly and indirectly had with my students. And I'm starting to sort of develop my own sort of, um, you know, grasp and understanding of, I mean, you basically just covered about 400 years of, of American history for the most part. Yeah, in like five minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm starting to piece together, but I'm also starting to wonder along the lines of what I think some of the themes are in some of these conversations. Beth Breeze is, is a good friend of mine. She teaches at the University of Kent. And in her recent book, uh, she recently wrote a book called A Defense of Philanthropy. And several times in the book, she kind of makes, she no, she doesn't kind of, she very explicitly makes the point that philanthropy is taking some heat and some criticism for things that quite frankly it shouldn't be taking heat for because we've we've as a society put so much responsibility on the nonprofit organization who can take the rich philanthropist check that we expect you know i understand that that rich person whoever that rich wealthy you know person happens to be, I totally understand that they've got an agenda and they're going to try to push their agenda some particular way. But is part of the structural question that you and I are sort of wrestling with that whatever the responsibility that that agenda sort of is pointing to perhaps shouldn't belong to that nonprofit that that rich fella or that rich gal is writing a check to. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we have to look back at what is our bias and our mindset, which makes us believe that Bill Gates can solve malaria right. or Mark yes. Zuckerberg can solve New York System's yes. public school problem. Yes. And what that is, is coming from Puritanism, going back again 400 years, how we have the elect, the concept of the elect, if you're rich, you must be really smart and know everything and be able to solve any problem. And if you're poor, you're stupid and no one should listen to you. And we see this dynamic play out over and over again at all levels of our society. So, um, and that comes from neoliberalism's emphasis on individualism. So we see a homeless person, we think they made bad choices instead of seeing a system failure. Other countries don't have homelessness and a lot of them just don't have it the way we do. And they just prioritize 
egalitarianism and treating everyone really well and taking care of everybody. So it does come back to what you said, Jason, that we are trying to solve societal problems that really we couldn't solve because it needs everyone to want to solve it. And, and, and I'll say it, higher taxes make sense. So it seems kind of bleak out there right now. And so a podcast that is giving me a lot of hope and joy is called the Upstream Podcast. And an episode that I recently listened to, which made me feel like this is a potential direction for the future, is called Fully Automated Luxury Communism. <laughs> what is it? What's the name of it? It's called Upstream. Upstream. Okay. Yeah. And it comes from the public health sector where you look at, well, this person had cancer. Let's look upstream from this problem. Oh, they live next to a toxic waste. So you look at what's upstream from the problem. And so they're always asking their guests, what's upstream? Why is this problem exist? How do we stop it at the root versus downhill? And so what we're talking about when we, when we found nonprofits, we have societal problems that we're trying to solve, but we don't look upstream to what originally caused that problem. That's not what our nonprofits are generally set up to question or look at. They're set up to be like, we have to deal with the issue over here instead of, but why is this a problem? And so if, again, as you said, if we looked at advocacy and said, no, let's all advocate at our state levels, at our national level for higher taxes to take care of more people and give these services back to the government and work ourselves out of a job. Yeah. That actually would probably do more to solve hunger and homelessness than anything individual nonprofits could ever do. But because of neoliberalism, we've been brainwashed to think we have to solve this right now. And the more complex the problem, the more urgent it seems that we have to solve. And there's probably a quick solution to that. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> so looping, uh, you and I reflecting on our conversation, our last conversation. So, you yes. know, and most of my listeners know that I get real hung up on the way that direct mail sort of dominates most of our fundraising efforts. You know, the, when it comes down to what the actual practitioner does, he yeah. or she is oftentimes putting an overwhelming amount of direct response into the either the inboxes or the mailboxes. And I'm thinking about what you're saying. And I'm also thinking about, um, oh, G gee whiz, his name escapes me, but he's, he just wrote a book. He's the president of the Ford Foundation. And he, he, he basically sort of, he and a number of people are sort of critiquing the charity model or the charity mindset that has to be woven into everything that you and I are. The charity mindset, the charity model allows for that individual to, you know, respond to that need at an individual level. It's highly marketable because I can send my hundred, you know, my dollar, my dollar 90 and save, you know, feel like I'm saving the world. And it makes for a nice sort of nice, neat package that can end up in a, you know, an appeal letter, for example, that ends up in a, in somebody's mailbox. But, but something I was thinking about, and I'd love to hear your, I, something I was thinking about this morning as, as, as coming home from class, Mazarine, I was thinking about how fundraisers, and this is kind of a way we can sort of move over to what the fundraiser's job is. And I think there's more of us who are perhaps engaging in and listening to and becoming more knowledgeable about that macro story that you and I are sort of talking about the last 500 years of, say, American history and the role that the charitable sector sort of plays. And I think we're starting to see where that charity that, for example, where the charity mindset sort of fits into the story. And we're starting to sort of critically ask ourselves, 
okay, I understand that it works. I understand that if I put an appeal letter in somebody's mailbox and ask them for $1.90 to save somebody's life on the other side of the planet, I understand that they will respond to that. I understand that the warm glow that they experience, et cetera, et cetera. But I think at the same time, how are we as fundraisers, how are we going to begin to sort of resolve the fact that those same fundraisers are increasingly listening to conversations like this that are perhaps far more knowledgeable than you and I are, will ever be, um, and really starting to question our our behaviors? Am I right? I mean, isn't that I'm talking, you know, we're through 325 episodes into this, and I can tell you that. As I listened in between, as I've listened time and time again in between the lines, I'm thinking, okay, these people are thinking carefully and critically about what it is they're doing, and you might get them to put that that appeal in the mail, but they're also going to go home and and start connecting the dots with some book that they're reading or something. You follow what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're asking us to go now to the granular instead of the theoretical and I and the historical context, and I really appreciate that. And let's go there. Yeah, so so go there. <laughs> okay, I'll go there. Okay. Yeah, go, I'll there. go there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So last time you and I talked, uh, you really told me what if we just had um fundraisers not go get the first donor? What if we had them just nurturing donors? And I think that's actually a really good idea. I've been giving it some consideration over the last week. And yeah. I really like that idea because ultimately what we are is community builders. We shouldn't yeah. have to be responsible for the life cycle of a donor from beginning to end. And that's often what burns fundraisers out in addition to not having a budget for their database or for an increasing budget if they have increasing goals for their programs. Um, it's that uh, they also have very little management um, of the what they actually do. A lot of people don't even know what they do. And because people have these concepts about money that are like wrong, <laughs> um, they get afraid of fundraisers. I was treated like this when I worked at the Urban League. People were like, oh, we can't talk to you. You're the money person. You're so special. And I'm like, I'm really just a person. And I bet you, you know, um, you know, financial CFOs feel this way sometimes too. Like people are like, oh gosh, money, you know, it it, it comes back down to religion, right? So in a day-to-day sense to come back around to what your question really is, I'd say, yes, I actually do agree with you on reflection. I agree with you that we should be nurturing donors. We should be having these face-to-face meetings. We should be asking people to come along with us hand in hand to make this better world. And even though it's not in your job description, you will be asked to educate your donor about some of the recent news things that have been going on with George Floyd, with Breonna Taylor, with all of the recent killings in the last year and six months. Like, it's something that uh, people are going to say, well, you know, I don't think I should have to talk about that. Our organization is about, you know, something else. But if you want to remain relevant, if you want to remain on the right side of history, you need to be talking about equity and belonging. And I would say, honestly, just come right out and say it, protecting Black women and protecting Black people, Black children, Black men in this country, because it's really tough out there. And I say this as a white person. (laughs) You know, um, yeah, so I, I, I think, yeah, 
So for for the sake of my listeners, so part of what we talked about during the previous discussion that did not make it to the air in my in my previous book, I I made this distinction between the, the initial gift and the subsequent gift. And I wasn't referring to the size of the gift at all. I was just sort of saying that there's really only two types of gifts out there and sort of and there's the initial gift. And that's the first gift that you get on Giving Tuesday or through direct response or however the hell you get it whatever. And then there's the subsequent gift. And on the subsequent gift or between these two gifts, I see, I see a lot of it's, it's between these two gifts that I see a lot of the problems that we have in the fundraising profession. And that is, we've got a lot of fundraisers whose professional identity is wrapped up in getting that initial gift. But a lot of the aspiration that I hear a lot of us talking about on podcasts like this and and as we become more enlightened on sort of structural concerns and stuff, it becomes more reflective of the types of conversations you get to have when you're having subsequent, what I would say is a subsequent gift conversation. And so we almost have to completely overhaul the job description. But at the same time, from a practical standpoint, you know, we've got we've got remarkable capabilities that, you know, practically speaking, what we call lame one fundraising in our consultancy. It can be outsourced. It can be driven by volunteers. It can be given to the direct response company down the street. It can be organized by the event planner who contracts with six other organizations in Portland. But the point is, the the question is, and and I asked this, Mazarine, I asked this of someone else recently, as as we talk about some of the things, you know, we're reading... um, just, I mean, some of these books are right here in front of me on my desk. We're reading some of these books that are provoking us to think carefully and critically about what it is we do in the nonprofit sector. Are we designing job descriptions that allow us to actually have those types of conversations with our donors? That's really the the disconnect, isn't it? Like we, you and I could both go to an AFP conference and we'll walk around the halls and we'll go to the bookstore or whatever. And we'll see all these conversations that provoke all these sorts of really big ideas and questions. But do we really actually sign on for job descriptions that allow us to convey those types of messages once we get our heads wrapped around them with donors for whom can actually enable resource the change through our organizations? Ooh. Yeah, so I think that's a rhetorical question. That's a what? The answer, it's a rhetorical question. Rhetorical question, yes. yes. Go ahead. And the answer yes, to that I'm... is no. <laughs> and so how do you solve this in a concrete way right now? Go to the people who are doing fundraising in your organization or go to yourself and then go to your boss and say, I want to rewrite my job description now for the yeah. areas of greatest strength so that we can stay relevant and also that I can do the most good for you without burning out. Yeah. There's several different layers here. There's the burnout question, which is very real for, you know, COVID and quarantine. Um, and it's it's June 2022. I'm still talking about this. I know people don't want to hear it. I'm going to keep talking about it. It's it's called resisting work. Uh, Peter Fleming's work and Mark Fisher's work on capitalist realism. Look it up. Really yeah. interesting stuff. Resisting work is another book that Peter Fleming wrote. Um, so another level is um, looking at where you sit personally getting that training for yourself, that DEI or that Jedi training for yourself and understanding it's more than a one-off training. It's not going to be a workshop that you take. I took a nine month training last year for the racing to equity leadership cohort all on zoom. It was 
extremely powerful. I cried every single time. And now I know way more than I did. And I still feel like I'm just kind of beginning my journey. Another thing you can do right away is look at the dismantlingracism.org PDF around the different aspects of white supremacy culture that exist in our organization and the antidotes, and then address one of those at a time in every board meeting and every staff meeting. That's what I've been seeing people do over the last two years. And it's been very powerful to help people kind of take off the blinders or put on a different set of glasses, whatever you want to say, you know, about how we don't know that we recreate these structures of oppression and so much of what we do in our organizations day to day and then also internally. So the internal work and the outside work has to happen at the same time. People don't want to hear that, but it's true. Um, another thing people can do in their fundraising concretely is sit down and ask your fundraiser, do you have enough of a budget to do to make this a successful program? What else do you need? How, yeah. When was the last time you asked your person that? Do, do we need to? So we have a metric at responsive. We have a metric that says approximately 25% of the time there should be a solicit. You know, so if you're consistently, if you're doing what we call middle lane work, which is a subsequent, it's a donor who's already given that initial gift. Hmm. Um, this is a subsequent gift type conversation. So you're navigating what we call the messy middle. Mm-hmm. And we, we advocate for the idea that approximately 25% of the time you will actually be soliciting, which means 75% of the time you're sitting at that lunch table, having the opportunity to fill up that space with everything that you're talking about. Yeah. And I think in some ways that's the call to someone like AFP and the lineup in like breakout sessions, because I don't know that we've got shit. I don't need. 12 breakout sessions on the mechanics of major gifts. What I, right. I mean, uh, I think, I think that's part of the tension that sort of exists in this over-professionalized sort of space is that if you want to have conversations, for example, about what Edgar talks about in decolonizing wealth, you just need to have somebody who knows how to consistently get to the lunch table and he or she needs to be perfectly fine. I, th- I think you are, are you the person who's talked about perfectionism? I think, think is yes. that part of our conversation yes. too. Yes. We have got to get comfortable. I mean, kudos to you and, 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 and let's get on that soapbox for a few minutes. We have got to get to the comfortable with the idea that once the donor has contributed their first gift, once they willingly said, yes, I'll sit down at the lunch table perfectionism is not what these folks are looking for. No. And that's really what holds us back as white people. You're never going to have a conversation that anything gets us anywhere close to like what Edgar talks about in his book. If you're not going to probably stumble over your words and probably say something stupid. Yeah. And that's what was really holding me back in 2020. Yes. Right. And I was like, I have to do this perfectly. Then my friend Kishana was like, Mazarin, I, I screw up all the time. Right. Right. Please just start. You have to keep being a voice and you have to keep giving opportunities to black women. And that's the work. That's the work that I would recommend anyone listening to this podcast do is think, 
all right, how can I go beyond my little bubble and give opportunities to speak, to give money, to have reparations wages for the Black women involved in our organization? Um, I would recommend that. I'm just going to come out and say that. Uh, a lot of people at like AFP, for example, expect Black women to speak for free. I don't think they should do that anymore. I did a petition about that in 2020. Uh, Mike Geiger, the head of AFP, signed it. I don't think things have changed. And yet, here we are. And so uh, advocacy can take many forms. Um, and just because something, uh, quote unquote, fails, like my uh, you know, wish to have that, see that come to fruition, right. doesn't mean that you're not opening up other conversations by starting. So yes, Jason, the other kind of the B story underneath this, right, is yeah. being afraid of rich people, being afraid that they're abusing their power, being afraid that the decolonizing philanthropy is going to turn off funders and so on and so forth. And I just want to address that for a second. Um, there's a lot of othering that happens between classes. So right now in the U.S., we have the ruling class versus everyone else. And that's yeah. why people like scratch their heads and say, why aren't the Democrats getting anything done? Like they don't have to. It's the ruling class. They are set for life. That's on the national level. On the local level, politics can be like extremely empowering and useful for where you are right now. Separate point. So I just want to take a moment to shout out to the Wealth Reclamation Academy of Practitioners with Veronica Garcia. If you haven't yet had her on your podcast, Jason, I would. She took the Grassroots Fundraising Journal by Kim Klein and she turned it uh -huh. into the Wealth Reclamation Academy of Practitioners. And now her work is renaming fundraising. And it's yeah. also helping uh, uh, people who are very wealthy see that there's been a wealth transfer from the global South to the global North because of colonialism, which is also yeah. an aspect of white supremacy. And now she's helping those ultra rich people shift their wealth back down to the global South. And I think that's powerful. And I think that's valuable. And I think like there's so many ways to crack this nut. Truth is a pathless land. You don't have to do what I'm saying. You get to be creative in how you think of solutions to this problem. But also remember, it's not about an individual. It's not about you thinking, I will do this because that's another aspect of white supremacy. It's not about perfectionism. It's not about individualism. It's not about, you know, how many doing people, it right the first time. Before I let you go, because I, I, I know we've got, we've got about 10 minutes here left before you and I both have meetings to get to. But yeah. How many people in the midst of, and again, this is somewhat of a rhetorical question because I think I know the, my own answer to the question, but I, I want to see if you and I are on the same page. I think some of these things are the real reasons why, and I think I just read an article to this point. I think some of these things are the reason why people are resigning their post. You started this conversation with the, with a reference to the, the great resignation. Yeah. And, and somebody else recently uh, used the term, for example, the great reshuffling. Um, and I, and I, and I don't know, you know, I can, I can hear, I can hear some of my listeners thinking, okay, I'm in healthcare or I'm in educate, I'm in some particular space. And some of this just doesn't seem relevant, but at the same time, I can also think that you've got this frontline fundraiser who probably has enough conversations with your donors where they think it's pretty damn relevant. Um, and, and so how it applies and how it sort of creeps into your organization and how it sort of makes a difference. Um, if, if you don't listen to that person and that person may be particularly young too, who's again, reading Edgar's book, for example, um, and perhaps a subscriber to a podcast like ours here, um, 
they're thinking about this stuff and they're thinking it through. Is that why people are resigning their post or is it just because they want bigger checks? You know, uh, if you look at the research from donor center leadership, uh, but that came out about five or six years ago. Right. So grain of salt with that. Um, the number one reason people leave is salary. Yeah. But, uh, and to replace someone who is a fundraiser organization costs 117% of their salary. Yes. That's directly from donor-centered leadership by Penelope yes. Burke Signet Research Group. However, um, if you look at the recent individual giving report by Neon One that just came out earlier this year, um, yes. that you'll see that, and this is only 2020 statistics because that's what we have right now, um, yeah. you'll see that there's a super decrease in donor retention across the board. Um, you'll see that people are definitely moving. I would say, even though they're not really talking about that in that report, I'm, I'm seeing it very much. I did a career conference in March and a lot of people there were like, oh, geez, you know, how do I get a job? Like, the, And then the jobs that are out there don't pay enough. And so my challenge to the people listening, whether you're in healthcare or education, is to think about how do I keep my good people if I'm doing microaggressions or if I'm doing things in the organization that are unintentionally harming others, how do I open up space to get people to talk about that with me? And my prompts from the dismantlingracism.org is a way to start that. Um, and you might say, look, Nazarene, I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I am exhausted. I'm overwhelmed. I am, The pandemic has been really hard for me too. I have long COVID. I get it. Just do a little bit with where you are and ask other people to join you and use the positional power that you have to start to have these conversations because they're happening whether or not you're in the room. It's relevant for every cause. Right, right. The 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 the, the volume of information and the connectivity and the sort of the time that we sort of find ourselves in the world. So all of that is sort of the lens. And then I think across 300 plus conversations that we've had here on the podcast and what most sort of distresses me, Mazarine, is that we've had fundraiser after fundraiser after fundraiser demonstrate their capability to be wonderful conversationalists. And I just don't know that we're having conversations with people who we could extraordinarily influence their thinking and where they direct that wealth. Does that make sense? Yes. You know, I, I, if you're an extraordinary conversationalist where you could literally hop on here and have a conversation that could go in 12 different directions, kind of like you and I have done here. If you've demonstrated that, or if you're capable of that, don't sit there and write emails and copy for direct response all the time, outsource that to somebody else and get in front of those donors and influence their thinking and raise the expectation and maybe scare the jajibis out of your boss because you're bringing home checks, you know, bringing checks back to the office that, you know, sort of blow them away. I don't know. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. How do we help empower fundraisers to have these crucial conversations? And they are crucial conversations. Um, I would say that it's, uh, a challenge. I don't think you have to get it right the first time, but I think you have to start saying this matters. This is important. Let's just start talking about this internally. And then like, how do we start talking about it externally? And of course, your boss will probably say, we don't want to alienate donors. And to that, I say, why are we catering to people who 
are in fact on the wrong side of history. You know, we don't want to just be like middle of the road. We can't make waves. The more you show what you stand for, the more loyal your donors are going to be because they believe it too. And the majority of people in this country believe that Black Lives Matter is majority. People in this country believe that women have the right to abortions, no matter what the Supreme Court has decided. So if that's the case, then side with the majority, even if it infuriates the minority. Yeah, they're loud, but there's not a lot of them. Yeah, I uh, I had a I had a donor that that was sort of on the on the other side of a this was I don't know 15 years ago I was yeah interacting with him and the organization I was working for and 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 he he he's he's certainly on the other side of sort of the political narrative that I tend to be on and uh, or certainly at the time and and I remember sort of realizing or or coming to the realization that we oftentimes make the mistake of sort of projecting political and religious and ideological sort of values onto our donors without actually knowing what they are, right? We don't actually know, again, because we've never sat down at the lunch table with them. And and so until you have like uh, Paulo Fieri talks, until you have dialogue, quit assuming that your donors necessarily believe and align with, with where you happen to be in the world. Um, and I tell my coaching colleagues, at least always assume that your donor is at least one degree to the left or right of you and not assume that they're perfectly aligned. Um, so Mazarine, uh, you and I need to do this. Listen, you got to, you have a, you have, you have, you have a permanent quarterly spot here on the fundraising talent podcast. I think we could really provoke you. each other into a lot of thought. I've enjoyed this conversation and this Me is the too. first of three this is the last of three. We will make sure this one gets on the air. But before I let you go, I want to make sure anybody who stuck with us the whole time here today knows how to find you and also remind them about the conference yet again. Um, and uh, and then we'll wrap up. I appreciate that. So um, my website's mazarientrace.com. If you want to have these conversations and you're not sure how, if you want to learn how to ask for more from your job or from the system, I'd love to help you do that. Um, I also have a podcast, askingformore.com. And if you want to go to our conference, if you're curious about consulting, if you're kind of fed up with where you are and you want to start out and with a bang, oh my gosh, have we got an incredible conference for you. It's nonprofitconsultingconference.com. And it's happening August 25th and 26th with incredible presenters, a chance for you to network. And we also have some turnaround events. I don't know when this is coming out, but um, get on my list and you'll find out when those are too. Pretty cool, Mazarine. Thank you for having me. I hope we do this again. Yes, we will certainly will. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers.
We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.